Cinder blew a wisp of hair from her face. Just that. Something about when they installed the brain interface, it did some damage to my, you know, whatever, the part of the brain that remembers things. The hippocampus, I guess. And how old were you? Eleven. Eleven. He released his breath in a rush. His gaze darted haphazardly around the floor, as if the reason for her immunity was written upon it. Eleven, because of a hover accident, was it? Right. Hover accidents are nearly impossible these days. Until some idiot removes the collision sensor, trying to make it go faster. Even so, it wouldn't seem that the few bumps and bruises would justify the amount of repairs you had. Cinder tapped her fingers against her hip. Repairs. What a very cyborg term. Yeah, well, it killed my parents and threw me through the windshield. The force pushed the hover off the maglev track. It rolled a couple times and pinned me underneath. Afterward, some of the bones in my leg were the consistency of sawdust. She paused, fiddling with her gloves. At least, that's what they told me. Like I said, I don't remember any of it. She only barely remembered the drug-induced fog, her mushy thoughts. And then there was the pain. Every muscle burning, every joint screaming. Her body in rebellion as it discovered what had been done to it. Do you have any trouble retaining memory since then? Or forming new ones? Not that I know of, she glared. Is this relevant? It's fascinating, Dr. Erlon said, dodging the question. He pulled out his port screen, making some notation. Eleven years old he muttered again. Then, you must have gone through a lot of prosthetic limbs growing into those. Cinder twisted her lips. She should have gone through lots of limbs, but Audrey had refused to pay for new parts for her freak stepdaughter. Instead of responding, she cast her eyes to the door, then at the blood-filled vials. So, am I free to go? Dr. Erlon's eyes flashed as if injured by her question. Go? Miss Lynn, you must realize how valuable you've become with this discovery. Her muscles tensed, her fingers trailing along the hard outline of the wrench in her pocket. So, I'm still a prisoner. Just a valuable one now? His face softened, and he tucked the port out of sight. This is much bigger than you realize. You have no idea how important, no idea of your worth. So what now? Are you going to inject me with even more lethal diseases to see how my body fares against those? Stars know you are much too precious to kill. <laughs> you weren't exactly saying that an hour ago. Dr. Erlan's gaze flickered to the holograph, brow furrowed as if considering her words. Things are quite different than they were an hour ago, Miss Lin. With your help, we could save hundreds of thousands of lives. If you are what I think you are, we could, well, we could stop the cyborg draft to start with. He settled his fist against his mouth. Plus, we would pay you, of course. Hooking her thumbs into the belt loops of her pants, Cinder leaned against the counter that held all the machines that had seemed so threatening before. She was immune. She was important. The money was tempting, of course. If she could prove her self-sufficiency, 
she might be able to annul Audrey's legal guardianship over her. She could buy back her freedom. But even that insight dulled when she thought of Peony. You really think I can help? I do. In fact, I think every person on Earth could soon find themselves immensely grateful to you. She gulped and lifted herself onto an exam table, folding both legs beneath her. All right, just so long as we're clear, I am here on a volunteer basis now, which means I can leave at any point I want to. No questions, no arguments. The doctor's face brightened, eyes shining like lanterns between the wrinkles. Yes, absolutely. And I do expect payment, like you said, but I need a separate account, something my legal guardian can't access. I don't want her to have any idea I've agreed to do this or any access to the money. To her surprise, he didn't hesitate. Of course. She sucked in a steadying breath. And one other thing, my sister. She was taken to the quarantines yesterday. If you do find an antidote, or anything that even holds promise as an antidote, I want her to be the first one to get it. This time, the doctor's gaze faltered. He turned away and paced to the holograph, rubbing his hands down the front of his lab coat. That, I'm afraid I cannot promise. She squeezed her fists together. Why not? Because the emperor must be the first to receive the antidote. His eyelids crinkled with sympathy. But I can promise your sister will be second. Chapter 12 Prince Kai watched through the glass as a medroid inserted an IV into his father's arm. Only five days had passed since the emperor had shown the first signs of the blue fever, but it felt like a lifetime. Years worth of worry and anguish rolled into so few hours. Dr. Erland had once told him of an old suspicion that bad things always came in threes. First, his android Nancy had broken before she could communicate her findings. And now his father was sick, with no hope for survival. What would happen next? What could be worse than this? Perhaps the Lunars would declare war. He cringed, wanting to take back the thought the second he had it. Contorin, his father's advisor and the only other human allowed to see the emperor in such a state, clapped a hand on Kai's shoulder. It will be all right, he said, without emotion, in that peculiar way he had of reading another person's thoughts. Kai's father moaned and opened swollen eyes. The room was quarantined on the seventh floor of the palace's research wing, but the emperor had been made as comfortable as possible. Numerous screens lined the walls so he might enjoy music and entertainment, so he might be read to. His favorite flowers had been brought in droves from the gardens, lilies and chrysanthemums filling the otherwise sterile room. The bed was dressed in the finest silks the Commonwealth had to offer. But none of it had made much of a difference. It was still a room made to keep the living separate from the dying. A clear window separated Kai from his father. He was squinting up at Kai now, but his eyes were empty as glass. Your majesty, said Torin, how are you feeling? The emperor's eyes crinkled at their corners. He was not an old man, but the illness had aged him quickly. His complexion was yellow and pallid, 
and black and red splotches stippled his neck. His fingers lifted from the blankets, the closest thing he could manage to a wave. Is there anything you need? Torin asked. A glass of water? Food? An escort 5.3, Kai suggested. Torn cast the prince a disapproving glare, but the emperor wheezed a small chuckle. Kai felt his eyes misting and had to look away, down at fingertips pressed into the windowsill. How much longer, he said, quiet so his father wouldn't hear. Torn shook his head. Days, if that. Kai could feel Torn's gaze on him, understanding but also harsh. You should be grateful for the time you have with him. Most people don't get to see their loved ones when they're taken away. And who wants to see their loved ones like this? Kai looked up. His father was struggling to stay awake, his eyelids twitching. Med, bring him water. The android rolled to the emperor's side and lifted his backrest, guiding a glass of water to his lips and wiping away the dribble with a white cloth. He did not drink much, but seemed refreshed when he had sunk again into the pillows. Kai. I'm here, Kai said, his breath fogging the glass. Be strong, trust. His words broke into a cough. The medroid held a towel to his mouth, and Kai caught a glimpse of blood against the cotton. He shut his eyes, measuring his breath. When he opened them again, the medroid was filling the IV with clear liquid, something to ease the pain. Kai and Torin watched as the emperor sank into a motionless sleep, like watching a stranger. Kai loved him, but couldn't quite connect the sick man before him with the vibrant father he'd had a week ago. One week. A shudder ran through him, and Torin squeezed his shoulder. Kai had forgotten his hand was there. Your Highness. Kai said nothing, staring at his father's chest as it rose and fell. The fingers on his shoulder tightened briefly, then fell away. You are to be emperor, your highness. We must begin to prepare you. We've already put it off too long. Too long? One week. Kai pretended not to hear him. As his majesty said, you must be strong. You know I will help in any way I can. Torn paused. You're going to be a fine leader. No, I'm not. Kai tugged a hand through his hair, pulling it back from his scalp. He was going to be emperor. The words rang hollow. The true emperor was there, in that bed. He was an imposter. I'm going to talk to Dr. Erland, he said, stepping back from the glass. The doctor is busy, your highness. You shouldn't keep distracting him. I just want to ask if there have been any developments. I'm sure he will tell you immediately if there are. Kai set his jaw and fixed his gaze on Torin, the man who had been his father's advisor since before Kai was born. Even now, standing in the same room with Torin made him feel like a child, gave him a peculiar urge to be unruly. He wondered if he would ever get over that. I need to feel like I'm doing something, he said. I can't just stand here watching him die. Torin's eyes dropped. I know, your highness. It's hard for all of us. It's not the same, Kai wanted to say, but held his tongue. Torin turned away from him, 
facing the window, and bowed his head. Long live the emperor. Kai repeated the words, whispering around the dryness in his throat. Long live the emperor. They were silent, leaving the visitor's room and walking down the hallway to the elevators. A woman was waiting for them. Kai should have expected it. She was always nearby these days, when she was the last person on earth he wanted to see. Sybil Mira, head thaumaturge to the lunar crown. Exceptionally beautiful, with waist-length black hair and warm, honeyed skin. She wore the uniform befitting her rank and title, a long white coat with a high collar and bell-shaped sleeves, embroidered along the hems with runes and hieroglyphs that meant nothing to Kai. Five paces behind her stood her ever-present, ever-silent guard. He was a young man as handsome as Sybil was beautiful, with blonde hair pulled into a low ponytail and sharp features that Kai had yet to see an expression on. Sybil's lips curbed as Kai and Torin approached, but her gray eyes remained cold. Your Imperial Highness, she said with a graceful dip of her head. How fares the Honorable Emperor Riken? When Kai didn't respond, Torin answered, Not well, thank you for your concern. I am most displeased to hear that. She sounded about as displeased as a cat who just cornered a mouse. My mistress sends her condolences and a wish for a speedy recovery. She fixed her eyes on the prince, and her image seemed to shudder before him like a mirage. Whispers filled his head, respect and admiration, compassion and concern. Kai tore his gaze from her, silencing the voices. It took a moment for his racing pulse to steady. What do you want, he said. Sybil gestured toward the elevators. A word with the man who will soon be emperor, should the fates deem it so. Kai glanced at Torin, but the face that met him was unsympathetic. Tact, diplomacy, always, especially when it came to the cursed lunars. Sighing, he half turned to the waiting android. Third floor, the sensors flashed. Please proceed to elevator C, your highness. They boarded the elevator, Sybil floating into it like a feather upon a breeze. The guard entered last, staying by the door and facing the three of them, as if the thaumaturge were in mortal danger. His icy gaze made Kai uncomfortable, but Sybil seemed to forget the guard was even there. This is a tragic time for his majesty to fall ill, she said. Kai gripped the rail and faced her, pressing his hatred into the polished wood. Would next month have been more convenient for you? Her patience didn't falter. I speak, of course, of the alliance discussions my mistress has been engaged in with Emperor Riken. We are most eager for an agreement that will suit both Luna and the Commonwealth. Watching her made him feel dizzy, off balance, so he tore his gaze away and watched the numbers above the doors descend. My father has been attempting to secure an alliance with Queen Levana since she first took the throne. She has always declined. He has yet to meet her sensible demands. Kai locked his teeth. Sybil continued. My hope is that, as emperor, 
you will be better able to see reason, your highness. Kai was silent as the elevator passed floors six, five, four. My father is a wise man. At this time, I have no intention of altering any of his previous decisions. I do hope we will be able to come to an agreement, but I'm afraid your mistress will need to lower her very sensible demands. Sybil's smile had frozen on her face. Well, she said as the doors opened to the third floor, you are young. He dipped his head, pretending she'd given him a compliment, then faced Torin. If you have a minute to spare, perhaps you could walk with me to Dr. Erlon's office. You may have questions I've not thought of. Of course, your highness. Neither of them acknowledged the thaumaturge or her guard as they left the elevator. But Kai heard her sugared voice behind them. Long live the emperor, before the doors shut. He growled. We should have her incarcerated. A lunar ambassador? That's hardly a show of peace. It's better treatment than they would give us, he raked a hand through his hair. Gah, lunars. Realizing that Torin had stopped following, Kai dropped his hand and turned around. Torin's gaze was heavy, worried. What? I know this is a difficult time for you. Kai felt his hackles rise in self-defense and tried to nudge them back down. This is a difficult time for everyone. Eventually, your highness, we will have to discuss Queen Levana and what you intend to do about her. It would be wise to have a plan. Kai stepped closer to Torin, ignoring a group of lab technicians that were forced to swarm around them. I have a plan. My plan is to not marry her. Diplomacy be damned. There, end of discussion. Torin's jaw flexed. Don't look at me like that. She would destroy us. Kai lowered his voice. She would turn us into slaves. I know, your highness. His sympathetic eyes diffused Kai's mounting anger. Please believe me when I say I would not ask it of you, just as I never asked it of your father. Kai backed away and slumped against the corridor wall. Scientists bustled past in their white coats. Android treads word on the linoleum. But if anyone noticed the prince and his advisor, they didn't show it. All right, I'm listening, he said. What's our plan? Your highness, this is not the place. No, no, you have my attention. Please, give me something to think about other than this stupid disease. Torin took a calculated breath. I don't think we need to rewrite our foreign affairs policy. We'll follow your father's example. For now, we'll hold out for a peace agreement, a treaty. And if she won't sign it? What if she gets tired of waiting and decides to follow through on her threats? Can you imagine a war right now with the plague and the economy and... She would destroy us, and she knows that. If she wanted to start a war, she would have done it by now. Unless she's just biding her time, waiting for us to get so weak we won't have any choice but to surrender. Kai scratched at the back of his neck, watching the bustle of the corridor. Everyone's so busy, so determined in their search for an antidote. If there were an antidote. He sighed. 
I should have married. If I'd already married, Queen Levana wouldn't even be an issue. She'd have to sign a peace treaty, if she wanted peace. At Torn's silence, he forced himself to look back at the advisor, surprised to find a rare warmth in his face. Perhaps you'll meet a girl at the festival, said Torin. Have a whirlwind romance, a happily ever after, and have no more worries for the rest of your days. Kai tried to glare at him, but couldn't maintain it. Torn so rarely joked, brilliant idea, why didn't I think of it? He turned, bracing his shoulder against the wall, and folded his arms over his chest. Actually, maybe there's one option that you and my father haven't considered yet. Something that's been on my mind lately. Do tell, your highness. He lowered his voice. Lately, I've been doing a little research, he paused before proceeding. On, on the lunar air. Torin's eyes widened. Your highness, just hear me out. Kai said, raising his hands to silence Torin before he could be chastised. He already knew what Torin would say. Princess Selene, Queen Levana's niece, was dead. She had died in a fire 13 years ago. There was no lunar air. There are rumors every day, Kai continued. Sightings, people claiming they helped her, theories. Yes, we've all heard the theories. You know as well as I, there's no substance to them. But what if they're true? Kai crossed his arms and ducked his head toward Torin, voice trailing to a whisper. What if there's a girl out there who could usurp Lavana? Someone even stronger? Are you listening to yourself? Someone stronger than Lavana? You mean someone like her sister? who had her favorite seamstress's feet chopped off so she would have nothing better to do than sit and make her fine dresses? We're not talking about Queen Channery. No, we're talking about her daughter. Kai, the entire bloodline, every last one of them has been greedy, violent, corrupted by their own power. It's in their blood. Believe me when I say that Princess Selene, even if she were alive, would be no better. Kai realized his arms were aching from squeezing them so hard, his skin gone white around his fingertips. She can't very well be worse, he said. And who knows, if the rumors are right, and she has been on Earth all this time, maybe she would be different. Maybe she would be sympathetic to us. You're basing this wishful thinking on rumors. They never found a body. Torn pursed his lips in a thin line. They found what was left of one. It couldn't hurt to do some research, could it? Said Kai, beginning to feel desperate. His heart had been set on the idea for so long. His research harbored so close to his heart. He couldn't bear to think it had all been just wishful thinking. Although the possibility had always lingered in the back of his mind. Yes, it could hurt, said Torin. If Lavana were to find out you were considering this, it would destroy our chance at procuring a treaty. We shouldn't even be talking about this here. It's dangerous. Now who's listening to rumors? Your Highness, this is the end of this discussion. Your objective right now must be to prevent a war, 
not worrying about phantom lunar princesses. What if I can't prevent it? Torn opened his palms, looking weary after the argument. Then the Union will fight. Right, excellent plan. I'm so comforted now that we've had this talk. He turned away and marched blindly toward the labs. Sure, the Earth and Union would fight, but against Luna, they would lose. Chapter 13 Your control panel is marvelously complex. Some of the highest technology I've ever seen in a cyborg. Dr. Erland spun the holograph one way and then the other. And look at this wiring along your spine. It melds almost perfectly with your central nervous system. Pristine workmanship. And, ah, look here. He pointed to the holograph's pelvis. Your reproductive system is almost untouched. You know, lots of female cyborgs are left infertile because of the invasive procedures, but from the looks of it, I don't suspect you will have any problems. Cinder sat on one of the exam tables, chin settled atop both palms. Lucky me. The doctor wagged a finger at her. You should be grateful your surgeons took such care. I'm sure I'll feel much more grateful when I find a guy who thinks complex wiring in a girl is a turn-on. She kicked her heels against the metal base of the table. Does this have anything to do with my immunity? Maybe, maybe not. The doctor took a pair of spectacles from his pocket and slid them onto his face, still staring at the holograph. Cinder tilted her head. Don't they pay you enough for corrective eye surgery? I like the way these feel. Dr. Erlon dragged the holograph down, revealing the inside of Cinder's head. Speaking of eye surgery, do you realize you're missing tear ducts? What, really? And I thought I was just emotionally withdrawn. She pulled her feet up, hugging her knees. I'm also incapable of blushing, if that was going to be your next brilliant observation. He turned around, his eyes magnified behind their spectacles. Incapable of blushing, how so? My brain monitors my body temperature, forces me to cool down if I get too warm, too fast. I guess just sweating like a normal human being wasn't enough. Dr. Erland pulled his port screen out, punched something in. That's really quite smart, he muttered. They must have been worried about your system overheating. Cinder strained her neck, but couldn't see the little screen on his port. Is that important? He ignored her. And look at your heart, he said, gesturing at the holograph again. These two chambers are made primarily of silicon, mixed with bio-tissue. Amazing. Cinder pressed her hand against her chest. Her heart, her brain, her nervous system. What hadn't been tampered with? Her hand moved to her neck, tracing the ridges of her spine as her gaze traveled over the metal vertebrae, those metallic invaders. What's this? She asked, stretching forward and pointing at a shadow on the diagram. Ah, yes, my assistants and I were discussing that earlier. Dr. Erland scratched his head through the hat. It looks to be made of a different material than the vertebrae, and it's right over a central cluster of nerves. Perhaps it was meant to correct a glitch. 
Cinder wrinkled her nose. Great, I have glitches. Has your neck ever bothered you? Only when I've been under a hover all day. And when I'm dreaming. In her nightmare, the fire always seemed to be hottest beneath her neck, the heat trickling down her spine. The unrelenting pain, like a hot coal had gotten beneath her skin. She shuddered, remembering Peony in last night's dream, crying and screaming, blaming Cinder for what had become of her. Dr. Erland was watching her, tapping his port screen against his lips. Cinder squirmed. I have a question. Yes, said the doctor, pocketing the screen. You said before that I wasn't contagious after my body got rid of those microbes. That's correct. So, if I had contracted the plague naturally, say, a couple days ago, how long before I was no longer contagious? Dr. Erland puckered his lips. Well, one can imagine that your body is more efficient at ridding itself of the carriers every time it comes in contact with them. So, if it took 20 minutes to defeat them all this time, uh, I would think it would have taken an hour the time before that, two at the most. Hard to say, of course, given that every disease and every body works a little differently. Cinder folded her hands in her lap. It had taken a little more than an hour to walk home from the market. What about, can it cling to, say, clothing? Only briefly, the pathogens can't survive long without a host. He frowned at her. Are you all right? She fiddled with the fingers of her gloves, nodded. When do we get to start saving lives? Dr. Erland adjusted his hat. I'm afraid we can't do much until I've had a chance to analyze your blood samples and map your DNA sequencing. But first, I wanted to get a better grasp of your body makeup in case it could affect the results. Being cyborg can't change your DNA, can it? No, but there have been studies suggesting that human bodies develop different hormones, chemical imbalances, antibodies, that sort of thing, as a result of the operations. Of course, the more invasive the procedure, the more... You think it has something to do with my immunity? Being cyborg? The doctor's eyes glowed, giddy, unnerving cinder. Not exactly, he said. But, like I said before, I do have a theory or two. Were you planning on sharing any of those theories with me? Oh, yes. Once I know I am correct, I plan on sharing my discovery with the world. In fact, I have had a thought about the mystery shadow on your spine. Would you mind if I tried something? He took off the spectacles and slid them back into his pocket, beside the port screen. What are you gonna do? Just a little experiment, nothing to worry about. She twisted her head as Dr. Erland walked around the table and placed the tips of his fingers on her neck, pinching the vertebrae just above her shoulders. She stiffened at the touch. His hands were warm, but she shivered anyway. Tell me if you feel anything unusual. Cinder opened her mouth, about to announce that any human touch felt unusual, but her breath hiccuped. Fire and pain ruptured through her spine, flooding her veins. She cried out and fell off the table, crumpling to the floor. Chapter 14 
Red light pierced her eyelids. Going haywire, her retina display was sending a skein of green gibberish against the backdrop of her lids. Something was wrong with her wiring. Her left fingers kept twitching, pulsing uncontrollably. Come down, Miss Lin. You're perfectly all right. This voice, calm and unsympathetic in its strange accent, was followed by one much more panicked. Perfectly all right? Are you crazy? What happened to her? Cinder groaned. Only a little experiment. She's going to be fine, your highness. See, she's waking up now. Another strangled protest before she could pry her eyes open. The lab's whiteness would have blinded her, but for the two shadows cutting through it. Her eyes focused the shapes into Dr. Erlon's wool hat and sky blue eyes, and Prince Kai with strands of black hair hanging unkempt across his brow. As the retina display began running the basic diagnostic tests for the second time that day, she shut her eyes again, faintly worried that Prince Kai would notice the green light at the base of her pupil. At least she had her gloves on. Are you alive? Kai said, pushing her must hair back from her forehead. His fingers felt hot and clammy against her skin before she realized that she was the one who was feverish which shouldn't have been possible. She couldn't blush, couldn't have a fever, couldn't overheat. What had the doctor done to her? Did she hit her head? Kai asked. The twitching stopped. Cinder pressed her hands against her body in an instinctual effort to hide them. Oh, she's fine, Dr. Erland said again. Had a bit of a scare. But no harm done. I am sorry for that, Miss Lin. I didn't realize you would be so sensitive. What did you do? She said, careful not to slur her words. Kai slipped an arm beneath her and helped her sit up. She flinched against him and tugged down her pant leg in case the metal gleam of her shin was visible. I was merely adjusting your spine. Cinder squinted at the doctor, not needing the little orange light to tell her he was lying but it popped up anyway. What's wrong with her spine? Kai's hand slid down to her lower back. Cinder sucked in a breath, a shiver racing along her skin. She feared the pain would come back, that the prince's touch would somehow override her system like Dr. Erlan's had. But nothing happened, and soon Kai lessened the pressure of his touch. Nothing is wrong with it, said Dr. Erlan but the spinal region is where many of our nerves congregate before sending messages up to our brains. Cinder watched Dr. Erland with wild eyes. She could already imagine how quickly Kai would pull away from her when the doctor told him he was supporting a cyborg. Miss Lin was complaining of a bothersome pain in her neck. She squeezed her fists together until her fingers began to ache. And so I gave her a bit of an adjustment. It's called chiropractic, a very old practice and yet amazingly effective. She must have been more out of alignment than I realized. And so the sudden realigning of the vertebrae created a temporary shock to her system. He grinned at the prince, eyes devoid of concern. The orange light persisted. Cinder gaped, waiting for the doctor to continue, to move past his inane lie and start telling the prince all of her secrets. She was a cyborg. She was immune to the plague. She was his new favorite guinea pig. 
But Dr. Erland said nothing else, only smiled at her with mischievous eyes that filled her with suspicion. Feeling Kai's gaze upon her, Cinder turned to him, meaning to shrug as if Dr. Erland's explanation made no more sense to her than it did to him. But the intensity of Prince Kai's gaze snatched away her words. I hope he's telling me the truth, because it would be a shame for you to die when we've just had the pleasure of meeting. His eyes glinted, as if sharing a secret joke, and she forced the fakest laugh she'd ever heard from her own lips. Are you all right? He said, taking her hand into his, one arm still around her back. Can you stand? I think so. He helped her to her feet. Not a sign of the excruciating pain remained. Thank you. She backed away from him, brushing herself off, even though the lab floor was immaculate. Her thigh bumped the exam table. What are you doing here? He asked, hands falling to his sides and hanging awkwardly for a second before finding their way into his pockets. Cinder opened her mouth, but was interrupted by Dr. Erland clearing his throat. You two have met, he asked, bushy eyebrows disappearing into his cap. Kai answered, we met yesterday at the market. Cinder shoved her hands into her pockets, mirroring Kai, and discovered the wrench. I'm, um, here, because, uh. One of the medroids was acting up, your highness, interrupted Dr. Erland. I requested that she come take a look at it. Her mechanic business has exceptional ratings. Kai began to nod, but stopped and scanned the room. What medroid? It isn't here anymore, of course, said Dr. Erland, his voice chipper, as if lying were a fun game. It's probably off drawing blood as we speak. Right, said Cinder, forcing her jaw to stop hanging open like an idiot's. I already fixed it. Good as new. She pulled out the wrench and twirled it over her fingers like hard evidence. Though Kai appeared confused, he nodded as if the story wasn't worth questioning. Cinder was grateful that the doctor had so easily devised a story, but it also unnerved her. What reason did he have to keep secrets from the crown prince, especially when he could be nearing a breakthrough on plague research? Didn't Kai deserve to know about it? Didn't everyone? I don't suppose you've had a chance to look at Nancy? Kai asked. Cinder stopped twirling the wrench and clutched it with both hands to keep herself from fidgeting. Uh, no, not yet. I'm sorry, it's been uh, the last 24 hours. He shrugged her words away, but the gesture was stiff on him. You probably have a client list a mile long. I shouldn't expect royal treatment. His mouth twitched. Although, I guess I do anyway. Cinder's heart tripped as his grin caught her by surprise, every bit as charming and unexpected as it had been at the market. Then, her eye spotted the holograph behind him, still showing her inner workings, from the metal vertebrae, to her bunched wires, to her perfectly intact ovaries. She snapped her gaze back to Kai, pulse racing. I promise to take a look at it as soon as I can, before the festival, definitely. Kai turned, following her gaze to the holograph. Cinder squeezed her fists together, nerves twisting in the base of her stomach, as Kai recoiled from the image.
A girl, a machine, a freak. She bit her lip, resigning herself to never receiving another of the prince's heart-stopping smiles when Dr. Erlan stepped toward the holograph and turned the net screen off with a flick. My apologies, your highness, patient confidentiality. That was from today's draft subject. Another lie. Cinder strangled the wrench, equal parts gratitude and suspicion filling her. Kai shook off his surprise. That's actually why I came down here. I was wondering if you've made any progress. Hard to say at this point, your highness, but we may have found a potential lead. I'll of course keep you posted on any developments. He smiled innocently, first at Kai, then at Cinder. The look was clear. He would not tell Kai anything. She just couldn't understand why. Clearing her throat, Cinder back toward the exit. I should go then. Let you get back to work, she said, tapping the wrench against her palm. I guess, um, I'll be back to make sure the med is performing properly. Say, tomorrow? Perfect, said the doctor. I also have your ID number in case I ever need to find you. His smile darkened, just barely, as if to say that Cinder's volunteer status would only last so long as she did return voluntarily. She was valuable now. He had no intention of letting her walk out forever. I'll see you out, said the prince, flashing his wrist by the scanner. The door breezed open. Cinder held up her gloved hands, the wrench locked in her grip. Uh, no, no, that's fine. I can find my way. Are you sure? It's no trouble. Yes, positive. I'm sure you have very important royal government research things to discuss. But thank you, your highness. She attempted an awkward bow, glad that at least this time she had both feet firmly attached. All right, well, it was nice to see you again. A pleasant surprise. She laughed ironically, surprised to find his expression serious, his eyes warm upon her, and a little curious. You too, she backed out the door, smiling, trembling, praying there were no grease spots on her face. I'll calm you, then, when your android is ready. Thank you, Lin Mei. You can call me Sin- the door shut between them. Der. Cinder would be fine, your highness. She sagged against the corridor wall, thumping her knuckles against her forehead. I'll calm you. You can call me Cinder, she mimicked, then bit down on her lip. <sighs> Don't mind the babbling girl. He was the fantasy of every girl in the country. He was so far out of her realm, her world, that she should have stopped thinking about him the second the door had closed. Should stop thinking about him immediately. Should never think about him again, except maybe as a client, and her prince. And yet, the memory of his fingers against her skin refused to fade. Chapter 15 Cinder had to download a map of the palace's research wing to find her way to the exit. Her nerves were on edge, with the prince, with Peony, with everything. 
She felt like an imposter roaming the slick white halls with her head bent, avoiding eye contact with the scientists and white-plated androids, even if she really was a volunteer now, a valuable one. She passed a waiting room, complete with two net screens and three cushioned chairs, and froze, her gaze catching on the window. The view, the city. From ground level, New Beijing was a mess. Too many buildings crammed into too little space. The streets untended, power lines and clotheslines strung across every alley, intruding vines scurrying up every concrete wall. But from here, atop the cliff and three stories up, the city was beautiful. The sun was high, and its light sang off of glass skyscrapers and gold-tinted roofs. Cinder could see the constant movement of huge net screens and flashing hovers as they darted between the buildings. From here, the city hummed with life, but without all the techno chatter. Cinder sought out the cluster of slender blue glass and chrome buildings that stood sentry over the market square, then tried to trace the roads north, searching for the Phoenix Tower apartments, but they were tucked behind too much city and too many shadows. Her awe slipped away. She had to go back, back to the apartment, back to her prison. She had to fix Kai's android. She had to protect Aiko, who wouldn't last a week before Audrey got the idea in her head to dismantle her for scrap metal, or worse, replace her faulty personality chip. She'd been complaining about the android being too opinionated since the day Cinder had come to live with her. Besides, she had nowhere else to go, until Dr. Erland was able to figure out how to deposit the payment into Cinder's account without Audrey finding out. She had no money and no hover, and her only human friend was a prisoner herself in the quarantines. She balled her fists. She had to go back, but she wouldn't stay long. Audrey had made it quite clear that she saw Cinder as worthless, a burden. She had no qualms dismissing her when she found a lucrative means to do it. A way that could keep her free of guilt because, after all, they needed to find an antidote. Peony needed an antidote. And maybe she'd been right to do it. Maybe it was Cinder's duty as a cyborg to sacrifice herself so all the normal humans could be cured. Maybe it did make sense to use the ones who had already been tampered with. But Cinder knew she would never forgive Audrey for it. The woman was supposed to be the one to protect her, to help her. If Audrey and Pearl were her only family left, she would be better off alone. She had to get away, and she knew just how she was going to do it. The look on Audrey's face when Cinder entered the apartment almost made the whole ghastly ordeal worthwhile. She'd been sitting on the sofa, reading on her port screen, Pearl was at the far end of the room, playing a holographic board game in which the game pieces were modeled after the girl's favorite celebrities, including three Prince Kai lookalikes. It had long been her and Peony's favorite, but Pearl was now battling strangers over the net and looked both bored and miserable about it. When Cinder walked in, both Pearl and Audrey gaped at her, and a miniature version of the prince fell onto his virtual opponent's longsword. Pearl paused the game too late. Cinder, said Audrey, 
setting her port screen on a side table. How are you? They ran some tests and decided I wasn't what they wanted, so they sent me back. Cinder pulled up a tight-lipped smile. Don't worry, I'm sure they'll still recognize your noble sacrifice. Maybe they'll send you a thank you, Com. Eyeing Cinder with disbelief, Audrey stood. They can't send you back. Cinder peeled off her gloves and stuffed them into her pocket. You'll have to file an official complaint, I guess. So sorry to barge in, I can see you are very busy running your household. If you'll excuse me, I'd better go try to earn my keep so you might actually blink an eye the next time you find a convenient way to get rid of me. She marched into the hallway. Aiko was poking her shiny head out of the kitchen, her blue sensor bright with astonishment. Cinder was amazed at how quickly her emotions switched from bitter to relieved. For a time, she'd thought she would never see Aiko again. The momentary joy faded when Audrey bustled into the hallway behind her. Cinder, stop. Though tempted to ignore her, Cinder did stop and turn back to face her guardian. They stared at each other, Audrey's jaw working as she stumbled over her surprise. She looked old, years older than she had before. I will be contacting the research facility to check your story and make sure you aren't lying about this, she said. If you did something, if you ruined this one chance I had to help my daughter. The anger in Audrey's voice broke, then rose into shrill yelling. Cinder could hear her burying tears beneath her words. You cannot be that useless. She pulled her shoulders back, gripping the door jam. What else do you want me to do? Cinder yelled back, flailing her hands. Fine, contact the researchers. I didn't do anything wrong. I went there, they ran some tests, and they didn't want me. I'm so sorry if they didn't ship me home in a cardboard box, if that's what you were hoping for. Audrey pulled her lips taut. Your position in this household has not changed, and I do not appreciate being spoken to in such a disrespectful manner by the orphan that I accepted into my home. Really? said Cinder. Would you like me to list all the things I didn't appreciate being done to me today? I've had needles poked at me and prongs stuck in my head and poisonous microbes. She caught herself, not wanting Audrey to know the truth, her true value. Honestly, I don't care so much what you do and don't appreciate right now. You're the one who betrayed me when I've never done anything to you. That is enough. You know very well what you've done to me to this family. Garen's death wasn't my fault. She turned her head away, angry white spots flecking in her vision. Fine, said Audrey, her voice losing none of its superiority. So you've returned. Welcome home, Cinder. But so long as you continue to live in my home, you will continue to obey my orders. Do you understand? Cinder planted her cyborg hand against the wall, Fingers splayed out, grounding herself. Obey your orders, right, like, do the chores, Cinder. Get a job so I can pay my bills, Cinder. Go play lab rat for these deranged scientists, Cinder. Yes, I understand you perfectly. She glanced back over her shoulder, but Iko had ducked back into the kitchen. 
as I'm sure you will understand that I just lost half a day of perfectly good work hours, and I'd better borrow your serve 9.2 to get caught up. You don't mind, do you? Without waiting for a response, she stormed back to her closet of a bedroom and slammed the door behind her. She stood with her back against the door until the warning text on her retina had gone away and her hands stopped shaking. When she opened her eyes, she found that the old net screen, the one Audrey had shoved off the wall, had been heaped on the pile of blankets she called a bed. Bits of plastic had spilled over onto her pillow. She hadn't noticed if Audrey had already bought them a new one or if the living room wall was empty. Sighing, she changed her clothes, eager to be rid of the smell of antiseptic that lingered on them. She shoved the spare plastic pieces into her toolbox and tucked the screen beneath one arm before venturing back out into the apartment. Iko hadn't moved, half hidden in the kitchen doorway. Cinder cocked her head toward the front of the apartment, and the android followed. She did not look into the living room as she passed, but she thought she heard the strangled sound of Prince Kai dying from Pearl's game. They had barely stepped out of the main corridor, fairly quiet for once with the neighbor children off at school, when Aiko wrapped her gangly arms around Cinder's legs. How is this possible? I was sure you'd be killed. What happened? Cinder handed the toolbox to the robot and headed for the elevators. I'll tell you everything, but we have work to do. She waited until they were alone and on their way to the basement before filling Aiko in on all that had happened, leaving out only the part about Prince Kai coming in and finding her unconscious on the floor. You mean you have to go back? Said Aiko as they stepped out into the basement. Yes, but it's fine. The doctor said I'm not in any danger now. Plus, they're going to pay me, and Audrey won't know about it. How much? I'm not sure, but a lot, I think. Aiko grabbed Cinder's wrist just as Cinder opened the chicken wire door to her workroom. You realize what this means? Cinder held the door open with her foot. Which part? It means you can afford a pretty dress, prettier than pearls. You can go to the ball, and Audrey won't be able to say anything to stop you. Cinder pressed her lips together like she'd just bitten a lemon and pulled her wrist from Aiko's grip. Really, Aiko? She said, examining her mess of tools and spare parts. You really think Audrey's gonna let me go now just because I can buy my own dress? She would probably tear it off me and try to resell the buttons. Well, fine, we won't tell her about the dress or about going to the ball. You don't have to go with them. You're better than them. You're valuable. Aiko's fan was whirring like mad, as if her processor could barely keep up with all these revelations. Immune to letamosis. My stars, you could be a celebrity because of this. Cinder ignored her, stooping to prop the net screen against the shelving unit. Her gaze had landed on a pile of silver fabric crumpled in the far corner, barely shimmering in the dusty light. What's that? Aiko's fan calmed to a slow hum. Peony's ball gown? I... I couldn't bring myself to throw it away. I didn't think anyone would ever come down here again, what with you. So I just thought I'd keep it, for myself. That was bad, Aiko. It could have been infected, 
Cinder hesitated only for a moment before walking to the dress and picking it up by the pearl-dotted sleeves. It was smudged with dirt and covered in wrinkles, and there was a chance it had been exposed to letamosis, but the doctor had said the disease wouldn't survive long on clothing. Besides, nobody was ever going to wear it now. She draped the gown over the welder and turned away. We're not using this money on a dress, she said. We're still not going to the ball. Why not, Iko said, a distinct whine in her robotic voice. Approaching her desk, Cinder swung her leg up and started unloading the stashed tools from her calf. You remember that car we saw at the junkyard? The old gasoline one? Iko's speakers made a coarse grumbling noise, the closest she could get to a groan. What about it? It's going to take all our time and money to fix it up. No, Cinder, tell me you're joking. Cinder was recording a mental list as she shut the storage compartment and rolled down her pant leg. The words scrolled across her vision. Get car, assess condition, find parts, download wiring blueprint, order gasoline. She spotted Kai's android on her work table. Fix android. I am serious. She pulled her hair back into its tight ponytail, strangely excited. Marching to the standing toolbox in the corner, she started fishing for things that might come in handy. Bungee cords and chains, rags and generators, anything to help get that car cleaned up and ready for fixing. We're going to go back tonight. Get it to the parking garage if we can, otherwise we might have to fix it at the yard. Now, I need to go back to the palace tomorrow morning and take a look at the prince's android tomorrow afternoon. But if we're diligent, I think I could have it fixed in a couple weeks, maybe less, depending on what it needs, of course. But why? Why are we fixing it? Cinder shoved the tools into her messenger bag. Because that car is going to get us out of here. Chapter 16 Night shift nurses and androids plastered themselves to the walls as Prince Kai barreled through the corridor. He had run all the way from his bedroom on the 16th floor of the palace's private wing, pausing to catch his breath only when he was forced to wait for the elevator. He burst through the door to the visiting room and came to a halt all at once, still gripping the door's handle. His mad eyes found Torin, arms crossed as he leaned against the far wall. The advisor tore his gaze from the glass window and met Kai's panicked expression with one of resignation. I heard, Kai started, pulling back his shoulders. Wetting his dry mouth, he came into the room. The door clicked behind him. The small sitting room was lit only by a table lamp and the bright fluorescence in the quarantine. Kai peered into the sick room just as a medroid pulled a white cloth over his father's closed eyes. His hammering heart plummeted. I'm too late. Torin stirred. It happened only minutes ago, he said, forcing himself away from the wall. Kai took in the advisor's lined face and sleepless eyes, and a cup of untouched tea that sat beside his port screen. He'd stayed late to work, rather than return to his own home, his own bed. The exhaustion caught up to Kai all at once, and he pressed his burning forehead against the cool glass. He should have been there too. I will set up a press conference, 
Torn's voice was hollow. A press conference? The country needs to know. We will mourn together. Torn seemed shaken for a rare moment. He covered it with a measured breath. Kai squeezed his eyes shut and chafed them with his fingers. Even knowing that it was coming, that his father was sick with this incurable disease, it still made no sense. All that had just been lost, taken so quickly. Not just his father, not just the emperor. His youth, his freedom. You will be a good emperor, said Torin, as he was. Kai flinched away from him. He did not want to think about it, all of his own inadequacies. He was too young, too stupid, too optimistic, too naive. He couldn't do this. The screen behind them pinged, followed by a sweetly feminine voice. Incoming communication for Crown Prince Kaito of the Eastern Commonwealth from Queen Levana of Luna. Kai spun toward the net screen, blank but for a spinning globe in the corner, signaling unavailable calm. Any threat of tears vanished into an oncoming headache. The air thickened, but neither of them moved. How could she know? So soon, said Kai. She must have spies. From the corner of his eye, he saw Torin level a glare at him a warning not to start in on the conspiracy theories just yet. Perhaps the thaumaturge or her guard saw you, he said, running through the castle in the middle of the night. What else could it mean? Locking his jaw, Kai drew himself to his full height, hailing the screen like an enemy. I guess our mourning period is over, he murmured. Screen, except calm. The screen brightened, Kai bristled at the sight of the Lunar Queen, her head and shoulders draped in an ornate cream-colored veil, like a perpetual bride. All that could be seen beneath the shroud was a hint of long dark hair and the ghost of her features. The explanation told by the Lunars was that their queen's beauty was a gift not to be seen by undeserving earthens. But Kai had heard that in reality the queen's glamour her ability to make people see her as divinely beautiful by manipulating their brainwaves, could not translate over the net screens. Therefore, she never allowed herself to be seen over them. Whatever the reason, looking at the white-swathed figure for too long always made Kai's eyes sting. My dear Prince Regent, Levana said in a saccharine voice, May I be the first to offer my condolences on the loss of your father, the good Emperor Riken. May he forever rest in peace. Kai cast a cool glare at Torin. Spies? Torin did not return the look. Though the occasion is tragic, I do look forward to continuing the talk of an alliance with you as the new leader of Earth's Eastern Commonwealth. As I see no reason to defer these conversations until your coronation, whensoever that shall be, I do think it's appropriate to plan a meeting as soon as is convenient in your time of mourning. My shuttle is prepared. I can depart as soon as your next sunrise and come to offer both my sympathies and my congratulations in the flesh. I will alert my thaumaturge to expect my arrival. 
she can ensure that accommodations are adequately prepared. I ask that you do not concern yourself with my comfort. I am sure you will have many other concerns during this tragic time. My sympathies are with you and the Commonwealth. She finished her message with a tilt of her head, and the screen blackened. Jaw hanging, Kai faced Torin. He squeezed his fists against his side before they could start to shake. She wants to come here? Now? It hasn't even been 15 minutes. Torin cleared his throat. We should discuss this in the morning, before the press conference, I suppose. Kai turned away, thunking his head against the window. Beyond the glass, the peaks of his father's body were obscured beneath the white sheet, not unlike the queen and her veil. The emperor had lost so much weight in the past weeks that his form seemed more like a mannequin's than a man's. His father was no longer there, unable to protect Kai, unable to offer advice, unable to lead his country ever again. She thinks I'm weak, Kai said. She's going to try and persuade me to accept the marriage alliance now, while everything is in chaos. He kicked the wall, biting back a cry of pain when he remembered he wasn't wearing shoes. Can't we tell her no? Tell her she's not welcome here? I'm not sure that would be the indication of peace your father had been striving for. She's the one who's been threatening war for the last 12 years. Torin pursed his lips and the haunting worry in his gaze quelled Kai's anger. Discussions must go two ways, your highness. We will listen to her requests, but she must listen to ours as well. Kai's shoulders drooped. He turned around, craning his head back and staring at the shadowed ceiling. What did she mean, her thaumaturge will prepare her accommodations? Removing the mirrors, I suspect. Kai squeezed his eyes shut. Mirrors, right, I forgot. He massaged his forehead. What was it about the lunars? And not just any lunar, Queen Levana. On Earth, in his country, his home. He shivered. The people aren't going to like this. No, Torrin sighed. Tomorrow will be a dark day for the Commonwealth. Chapter 17. A ping darted through Cinder's head, followed by a message scrolled across the blackness of sleep. Com received from New Beijing District 29. Letamosis quarantine. Lin Peony entered third stage of letamosis at 4.57 on 22 August 126 TE. It took a minute to shake off the grogginess of sleep and make sense of the scrawling words. She opened her eyes to the windowless bedroom and sat up. All her muscles ached from the midnight trip to the junkyard. Her back hurt so bad it felt as though that old car had run over her, rather than sat in neutral while she and Iko pushed and pulled it through the back roads. But they had succeeded. The car was hers moved to a dark corner of the apartment's underground parking garage, where she'd be able to work on it every spare moment. As long as no one complained about the smell, it would remain her and Iko's little secret. 
When they'd finally returned home, Cinder had crashed like someone had hit her power button. For once, she'd had no nightmares. At least, no nightmares until the message woke her. The thought of Peony all alone in the quarantines spurred her out of her pile of blankets with a stifled groan. She pulled on a pair of gloves, stole a green brocade blanket from the linen closet in the hall, and passed Iko, set to conservation mode and connected to a charging station in the living room. It felt strange leaving without the android, but she planned on going straight to the palace afterward. In the apartment corridor, she could hear someone pacing on the next floor and Annette's screen mumbling the morning news. Cinder calmed a hover for the first time in her life, and it was ready for her by the time she got down to the street. She scanned her ID and gave it the quarantine's coordinates before settling into the far back. Cinder netlinked so she could trace the hover's path to the quarantine. The map that overlaid her vision indicated it was in the industrial district, 15 miles outside the city limits. The city was all shadows, blurry, sleepy apartments and empty sidewalks. The buildings grew shorter with more space between them as the heart of the city was left behind. Pale sunlight crawled down the streets, sending long shadows across the pavement. Cinder knew they'd reached the industrial district without the map's help. She blinked it away and watched the factories roll by alongside squat concrete warehouses with gigantic roll-up doors that could accommodate even the largest hover, probably even cargo ships. Cinder scanned her ID as she exited so the hover could debit her nearly depleted account, then ordered it to wait for her. She headed toward the nearest warehouse where a group of androids stood by the door. Above the door was a brand new net screen flashing, Letamosis Quarantine, patients and androids only beyond this point. She draped the blanket over her forearms and tried to look confident as she walked, wondering what she would say if the androids questioned her. But the Medroids must not have been programmed to deal with healthy people coming into the quarantines. They hardly even noticed her as she passed. She hoped it would be as easy to leave. Perhaps she should have asked Dr. Erland for a pass. The stench of excrement and rot reached out to her as she stepped into the warehouse. She reeled back, cupping her palm over her nose as her stomach churned, wishing her brain interface could dull odors as easily as it could noise. Sucking in a breath through her glove and holding it, she forced herself into the warehouse. It was cooler inside, the concrete floor untouched by the sun. Opaque green plastic covered a thin row of windows near the high ceilings, swathing the building in a dingy haze. Gray light bulbs hummed overhead, but they did little to dispel the darkness. Hundreds of beds were lined up between the distant walls, covered in mismatched blankets, donations, and scraps. She was glad to have brought a nice one for Peony. Most of the beds sat empty. This quarantine had been hastily constructed in just the past weeks as the sickness crept closer to the city. Still, the flies had already caught on and filled the room with buzzing. The few patients Cinder passed were sleeping or staring blankly up at the ceiling, their skin covered in a blue-black rash. Those who still had their senses were hunkered over port screens, their last connection to the outside world. Glossy eyes looked up, following Cinder as she hurried by. 
More Medroids moved between the beds, supplying food and water, but none of them stopped Cinder. She found Peony asleep, tangled in a baby blue blanket. Cinder wasn't sure she would have recognized her if it hadn't been for the chestnut curls draped over the pillow. The purplish blotches had spread up her arms. Though she was shivering, her forehead glistened with sweat. She looked like an old woman, just this side of death. Cinder removed her glove and placed the back of her hand against Peony's forehead. Warm to the touch and damp. The third stage of letimosis. She spread the green blanket over Peony, then stood, wondering if she should wake her, or if it was better to let her rest. Rocking back on her heels, she looked around. The bed behind her was empty. The one on the opposite side of Peony was occupied by a petite form turned away from her, curled in a fetal position, a child. Cinder started as she felt a tug on her left wrist. Peony was gripping her steel fingers, squeezing with the little strength she had left. Her eyes watched Cinder, pleading, afraid, awed as if Peony were seeing a ghost. Cinder swallowed hard and sat down on the bed. It was almost as hard as the floor in her own bedroom. Take me home, Peony said, her voice scratching at the words. Cinder flinched. She covered Peony's hand. I brought you a blanket, she said, as if it explained her presence. Peony's gaze fell from her. Her free hand traced the texture of the brocade. They said nothing for a long time, until a shrill scream reached them. Peony's hands clenched as Cinder spun around, searching, sure someone was being murdered. A woman four aisles away was thrashing in her bed, screeching, begging to be left alone as a calm medroid waited to inject her with a syringe. A minute later, two more androids arrived to hold the woman still, forcing her down on the bed, holding her arm out to receive the shot. Feeling Peony curl up beside her, Cinder turned back. Peony was shaking. I'm being punished for something, Peony said, shutting her eyes. Don't be ridiculous, Cinder said. The plague, it's just, it isn't fair, I know. But you didn't do anything wrong. She patted the girl's hand. Our mom and Pearl, heartbroken, said Cinder. We all miss you so much but they haven't caught it. Peony's eyes flickered open. She scanned Cinder's face, her neck. Where are your spots? Lips parting, Cinder rubbed absently at her throat, but Peony didn't wait for an answer. You can sleep there, right? She said, gesturing to the empty bed. They won't give you a bed far away. Cinder squeezed Peony's hands. No, Peony, I'm not. She looked around, but no one was paying them any attention. A medroid two beds away was helping a patient take a drink of water. I'm not sick. Peony listed her head. You're here. I know, it's complicated. You see, I went to the Letimosis Research Center yesterday, and they tested me, and... Peony, I'm immune. I can't get Letimosis. Peony's tense brow melted. She scanned Cinder's face, neck, 
arms again, as if her immunity were something visible, something that should have been apparent. Immune? Cinder rubbed Peony's hand more quickly, anxious now that she'd told someone her secret. They asked me to go back again today. The head doctor thinks he might be able to use me to find an antidote. I told him that if he finds anything, anything at all, you have to be the first person to get it. I made him promise. She watched, amazed, as Peony's eyes began to fill with tears. Really? Absolutely, we're going to find one. How long will it take? Uh, I'm not sure. Peony's other hand found her wrist and squeezed. Her long nails dug into Cinder's arm. But it took her a long time to register the pain. Peony's breath had grown rapid. More tears pooled in her eyes, but some of the instant hope had faded, leaving her wild with desperation. Don't let me die, Cinder. I want to go to the ball. Remember, you were going to introduce me to Prince. She turned her head, scrunching her face up in a vain attempt to hold in the tears, or hide them, or squeeze them out faster. Then, a harsh cough burst from her mouth, along with a thin trail of blood. Cinder grimaced, then reached forward and swiped the blood off Peony's chin with the corner of the brocade blanket. Don't give up, Peony. If I'm immune, then there has to be a way to defeat it. And they're going to find it. You're still going to the ball. She considered telling Peony that Iko had managed to save her dress, but realized that would require telling her that everything else she'd ever touched was gone. She cleared her throat and stroked Peony's hair off her temple. Is there anything I can do to make you more comfortable? Peony shook her head against the worn pillow, holding the blanket against her mouth. But then she raised her eyes. My port screen? Cinder flinched with guilt. I'm sorry. It's still broken, but I'll look at it tonight. I just want a calm pearl. And mom. Of course, I'll bring it to you as soon as I can. Peony's port screen, the prince's android, the car. I'm so sorry, Peony, but I need to go. The small hands tightened. I'll be back as soon as I can, I promise. Peony took in a shaky breath, sniffed, then released her. She dug her frail hands beneath the blanket, burying herself up to her chin. Cinder stood and untangled Peony's hair with her fingers. Try to get some sleep. Reserve your strength. Peony followed Cinder with her watery gaze. I love you, Cinder. I'm glad you're not sick. Cinder's heart tightened. Pursing her lips, she bent over and placed a kiss against Peony's damp forehead. I love you too. She struggled to breathe as she forced herself to walk away, trying to trick herself into being hopeful. There was a chance, a chance. She didn't look at any of the other patients as she made her way to the quarantine's exit. But then she heard her name. She paused, thinking that the sandpaper voice had been nothing more than her imagination mixed with too many hysterical cries. Cinder. She turned and spotted a familiar face, half covered by an age-bleached quilt. Chang Zhe? She neared the foot of the bed, 
nose wrinkling at the pungent odor wafting from the woman's bed. Chang Sasha, the market baker, was barely recognizable with her swollen eyelids and sallow skin. Trying to breathe normally, Cinder rounded the bed. The quilt that rested across Sasha's nose and mouth shifted with her belabored breathing. Her eyes were glossy, as wide as Cinder had ever seen them. It was the only time she could remember Sasha looking at her without disdain. You too, Cinder. Instead of answering, Cinder said uncertainly, Can I do anything for you? They were the kindest words that had ever passed between them. The blanket shifted, inching down Sasha's face. Cinder bit back a gasp at seeing the blue-ringed splotches on the woman's jaw and down her throat. My son, she said, wheezing each word. Bring Sunto. I need to see him. Cinder didn't move, remembering how Sasha had ordered Sunto away from her booth days before. Bring him? Sasha snaked one arm out from beneath the blankets and reached toward Cinder, grasping her wrist where skin met metal. Cinder squirmed, trying to pull away, but Sasha held tight. Her hand was marked by bluish pigment around her yellowed fingernails. The fourth and final stage of the blue fever. I will try, she said. She reached up, hesitated, then pet Sasha on the knuckles. The blue fingers released her and sank to the bed. Sunto, Sasha murmured. Her gaze was still locked on Cinder's face, but the recognition had faded. Sunto. Cinder stepped back, watching as the words dried up, the life dulled in Sasha's black eyes. Cinder convulsed, tying her arms around her stomach. She looked around. None of the other patients were paying any attention to her or the woman, the corpse, beside her. But then she saw the android rolling toward them. The medroids must be linked somehow, she thought, to know when someone dies. How long did it take for the notification comm to be sent to the family? How long would it be before Sunto knew he was motherless? She wanted to turn away, to leave, but she felt rooted to the spot as the android wheeled up beside the bed and took Sasha's limp hand between its grippers. Sasha's complexion was ashen, but for the bruised blotches on her jaw. Her eyes were still open, turned toward the heavens. Perhaps the medroid would have questions for Cinder. Perhaps someone would want to know the woman's final words. Her son might want to know. Cinder should tell someone but the medroid sensor did not turn toward her. Cinder licked her lips. She opened her mouth, but could think of nothing to say. A panel opened in the body of the medroid. It reached in with its free prongs and pulled out a scalpel. Cinder watched, mesmerized and disgusted, as the android pressed the blade into Sasha's wrist. A stream of blood dripped down Sasha's palm. Cinder shook herself from her stupor, and stumbled forward. The foot of the bed pressed into her thighs. What are you doing? She said, louder than she'd meant to. The medroid paused with the scalpel buried in Sasha's flesh. 
its yellow visor flashed toward Cinder, then dimmed. How can I help you? It said with its manufactured politeness. What are you doing to her? She asked again. She wanted to reach out and snatch the scalpel away, but feared she misunderstood. There must be a reason, something logical. Medroids were all logic. Removing her ID chip, said the android. Why? The visor flashed again, and the android returned its focus to Sasha's wrist. She has no more use for it. The medroid traded the scalpel for tweezers, and Cinder heard the subtle click of metal on metal. She grimaced as the android extracted the small chip. Its protective plastic coating glistened scarlet. But don't you need it to identify the body? The android dropped the chip into a tray that opened up in its plastic plating. Cinder saw it fall into a bed of dozens of other bloodied chips. It drew the tattered blanket over Sasha's unblinking eyes. Instead of answering her question, it said simply, I have been programmed to follow instructions. Chapter 18 A medroid rolled into Cinder's path as she exited the warehouse, blocking her way with outstretched spindly arms. Patients are strictly forbidden from leaving the quarantine area, it said, nudging Cinder back into the shadows of the doorway. Cinder swallowed her panic and halted the robot with a palm against its smooth forehead. I'm not a patient, she said. I'm not even sick, here. She held out her elbow, displaying a small bruise from being stuck with too many needles the past two days. The android's innards hummed as it processed her statement, searching its database for a logical reaction. Then, a panel opened in its torso, and the third arm, the syringe arm, extended toward Cinder. She flinched, her skin tender, but tried to relax as the android drew a fresh sample of blood. The syringe disappeared into the android's body, and Cinder waited, rolling her sleeve down over the hem of her glove. The test seemed to take longer than at the junkyard, and a sinking panic was crawling up Cinder's spine. What if Dr. Erland had been wrong? When she heard a low beep, and the android backed away, clearing her path. She released her breath and did not look back at the robot or any of its companions as she crossed the hot asphalt. The hover was still waiting for her. Settling into the back seat, she told it to take her to New Beijing Palace. Having been unconscious the first time she'd been brought to the palace, Cinder found herself plastered to the hover's window as she was taken up the steep winding road to the top of the harsh cliffs that bordered the city. Her netlink fished for information, telling her that the palace had been built after World War IV, when the city was little more than rubble. It was designed in the fashion of the old world, with hearty dosages of both nostalgic symbolism and state-of-the-art engineering. The pagoda-style roofs were made of gold-tinged tiles and surrounded by kiln gargoyles, but the tiles were actually galvanized steel covered with tiny solar capsules that created enough energy to sustain the entire palace, including the research wing. And the gargoyles were equipped with motion sensors, ID scanners, 360-degree cameras, and radars that could detect approaching aircrafts and hovers within a 60-mile radius. All that was invisible, though, the technology hidden in the ornately carved beams and tiered pavilions. 
What captured Cinder's eye was not modern technology, but a cobblestoned road lined with cherry blossom trees. Bamboo screens framing the garden entrances. Through a peep window, a steadily trickling stream. The hover did not stop at the main entrance with its crimson pergolas. Instead, it rounded to the northern side of the palace, nearest the research wing. Though this part of the palace was more modern, less nostalgic, Cinder still noticed a squat Buddha sculpture with a cheery face off the pathway. As she paid for the hover and walked toward the automatic glass door, a subtle pulse tugged at her ankle. Buddha scanning visitors for weapons. To her relief, the steel in her leg did not set off any alarms. Inside, she was greeted by an android who asked for her name and told her to wait in the elevator bank. The research center was a hive of activity. Diplomats and doctors, ambassadors and androids, all roaming the halls on their separate missions. An elevator opened and Cinder stepped into it, glad to be alone. The doors began to close, but then paused and opened again. Please hold, said the mechanical voice of the elevator operator. A moment later, Prince Kai darted through the half-open doors. Sorry, sorry, thanks for hold. He saw her and froze. Lin Mei? Cinder pushed herself off the elevator wall and fell into the most natural bow she could, simultaneously checking that her left glove was pulled up over her wrist. Your Highness. The words were a rush spit out automatically, and she felt the need to say something more to fill the space of the elevator, but nothing came. The doors closed, the box began to rise. She cleared her throat. You should, um, just call me Cinder. You don't have to be so diplomatic. The corner of the prince's lip quirked, but the almost smile didn't reach his eyes. All right, Cinder, are you following me? She frowned, hackles rising before she realized he was teasing her. I'm just going to check on the Medroid that I looked at yesterday to ensure it doesn't have any remaining bugs or anything. He nodded, but Cinder detected a shadow lingering behind his eyes, a new stiffness to his shoulders. I was on my way to talk to Dr. Erland about his progress, I heard through the grapevine that he may have made progress with one of the recent draft subjects. I don't suppose he said anything to you. Cinder fidgeted with her belt loops. No, he didn't mention anything, but I'm just the mechanic. The elevator came to a stop. Kai gestured for her to exit first, and then joined her as they made their way to the laboratories. She watched the white floor pass beneath her feet. Your Highness? interrupted a youngish woman with black hair that hung in a tight braid. Her gaze was fixed on Prince Kai, all sympathy. I'm so sorry. Cinder's gaze shifted to Kai, who tipped his head at the woman. Thank you, Fatim, and kept walking. Cinder frowned. Not a dozen steps later, they were halted again by a man carrying a handful of clear vials in his fists. My condolences, your highness. Cinder shivered as her feet came to a pause beneath her. Kai stopped and peered back at her. You haven't seen the net this morning. A heartbeat later, Cinder was accessing her net link, 
pages flashing across her eyesight. The EC News page, a half dozen pictures of Emperor Riken, two pictures of Kai, the Prince Regent. She clapped a hand to her mouth. Kai seemed surprised, but the look quickly faded. He ducked his head, his black bangs falling into his eyes. Good guess. I'm so sorry, I didn't know. He tucked his hands into his pockets and gazed down the hallway. Only now did Cinder notice the faint rim of red around his eyes. I wish my father's death were the worst of it. Your Highness? Her netlink was still scanning for information, but nothing seemed worse than Emperor Riken having passed away last night. The only other noteworthy tidbit was that Prince Kai's coronation had been scheduled for the same evening of the peace festival to take place before the ball. He met her gaze, surprised, as if he'd forgotten who he was speaking with. Then, you can call me Kai. She blinked. Excuse me? No more, your highness. I get enough of that from everyone else. You should just call me Kai. No, that would be- Don't make me turn it into a royal command, he hinted at a smile. Cinder scrunched her shoulders up by her ears, suddenly embarrassed. All right, I suppose. Thank you. He cocked his head toward the hall. We should go then. She had nearly forgotten that they were in the research hall, surrounded by people, everyone politely ignoring them as if they were not even there. She started down the hallway, wondering if she'd spoken out of place and awkward beside the prince, who was suddenly just Kai. It didn't feel right. What was wrong with the android? She scratched at an oil stain on her glove. Oh, I'm sorry, she's not done yet. I'm working on her, I swear. No, I mean the medroid that you fixed for Dr. Erland. Oh, oh, right. Um, it was, it had a, uh, dead wire between its optosensor and control panel. Kai lifted an eyebrow, and she wasn't sure that she'd convinced him. She cleared her throat. You, uh, said something was worse before? When Kai said nothing for an awkward moment, she shrugged. Never mind, I didn't mean to pry. No, it's all right. You'll find out soon enough. He lowered his voice, inclining his head toward her as they walked. The Lunar Queen informed us this morning that she is coming to the Commonwealth on a diplomatic mission, supposedly. Cinder nearly tripped, but Kai kept walking. She stumbled after him. The Lunar Queen is coming here? You can't be serious. I wish I weren't. Every android in the palace has spent the morning taking down every reflective surface in the guest wing. It's ridiculous, like we have nothing better to do. Reflective surfaces? I always thought that was just superstition. Evidently not. Something about their glamour. He twirled a finger around his face, then stopped. It doesn't really matter. When is she coming? Today. Cinder's stomach plummeted. The Lunar Queen? Coming to New Beijing? A chill crawled down her arms. I'll be making an announcement in half an hour. Why would she come now, when we're in mourning? 
a grim smile. Because we're in mourning. Kai paused. With a glance around the hallway, he inched toward Cinder, lowering his voice. Look, I really appreciate your helping with the Medroids, and I'm sure the best mechanic in the city has a million jobs to prioritize, but at the risk of sounding like a spoiled prince, could I ask that you move Nancy to the top of your list? I'm starting to get anxious about getting her back. I he hesitated. I think I could use the moral support of my childhood tutor right now, you know? The intensity in his eyes did not try to hide his true meaning. He wanted her to know he was lying. This had nothing to do with moral support or childhood attachments. The panic behind the prince's eyes spoke volumes. What information could that android have that was so important? And what did it have to do with the Lunar Queen? Of course, your highness. Sorry, Prince Kai. I'll take a look at her as soon as I get home. She thought she spotted gratitude hidden somewhere beneath all his worry. Kai gestured at the door beside him, labeled Dr. Dimitri Erland. He opened the door and ushered her in. Dr. Erland was sitting at a lacquered desk, poring over a screen set into the surface. When he spotted Kai, he leaped to his feet, simultaneously snatching up his wool cap and rounding the desk toward them. Your Highness, I am so sorry. What can I do to help you? Nothing, thank you, said Kai, a practiced reaction. Then he pulled his shoulders back, reconsidering. Find a cure. I will, your highness, he pulled his hat on. Of course I will. The conviction in the doctor's face was almost startling, but also comforting. Cinder immediately wondered if he'd found something new in the hours since she'd last seen him. She thought of Peony, alone in the quarantine. Though it was an awful thing to think, and she immediately chastised herself for it. She couldn't help it. With Emperor Riken dead, Peony was the first in line for an antidote. Kai cleared his throat. I found your pretty new mechanic down in the lobby, and she tells me she's here to check on the Medroids again. You know, I could get you funding for some upgraded models if you require it. Cinder started at the simple word, pretty. But neither Kai nor Dr. Erland looked at her. Teetering on her feet, she scanned the room. A floor-to-ceiling window captured a perfect view of the lush palace gardens and the city beyond. Open shelves were filled with objects both familiar and unusual, new and ancient. A stack of books, not port screens, but solid paper books. Jars filled with leaves and dried flowers, jars filled with finely labeled liquids, jars filled with animal specimens and formaldehyde, a series of rocks and metals and ores, all finely labeled. It was the office of a witch doctor as much as an acclaimed royal scientist. No, no, they only need a touch of maintenance, Dr. Erland was saying, lying as smoothly as he had the day before. Nothing to worry about, and I would hate to have to program a new model. Besides, if we didn't have any malfunctioning androids, what excuse would we have for asking Miss Lin back to the palace from time to time? Cinder glared at the doctor, half mortified, but the start of a smile grew on Kai's face. Doctor, said Kai, 
I heard a rumor that you've made some sort of a breakthrough in the past few days. Is it true? Dr. Erland pulled the spectacles from his pocket and set to cleaning them with the hem of his lab coat. My prince, you should know better than to ask after rumors like that. I hate to give you hope before I know anything concrete, but when I do have solid information, you will be the first to see the report. He slid the glasses onto his nose. Kai tucked his hands into his pockets, seemingly satisfied. Right, in that case, I leave you be and hope to see a report cross my desk any day now. That could be difficult, your highness, considering you do not have a desk. Kai shrugged and turned to Cinder. His eyes softened a little with a polite bow of his head. I hope our paths will cross again. Really? In that case, I guess I'll keep following you. She regretted the joke for half a breath before Kai laughed. A real laugh, and her chest warmed. Then the prince reached for her hand, her cyborg hand. Cinder tensed, terrified that he would feel the hard metal, even through her gloves, and yet even more afraid to pull away, lest he find it suspicious. She mentally urged the robotic limb to go soft, to be pliant, to be human, as she watched Kai lift the hand and kiss the back of it. She held her breath, overwhelmed and embarrassed. The prince released her, bowed, his hair falling into his eyes again, and left the room. Cinder stood frozen, her wired nerves humming. She heard Dr. Erland grunt in curiosity, but the door opened again as soon as it had closed. Gracious, Dr. Erland muttered as Kai stepped back inside. Pardon me, but might I have one more brief word with Lin May? Dr. Erland flicked his wrist toward her. By all means. Kai turned to her, still in the doorway. I know this sounds like very poor timing, but trust me when I say my motives are based on self-preservation. He inhaled a sharp breath. Would you consider being my personal guest at the ball? The floor dissolved beneath Cinder. Her mind blanked. Surely she hadn't heard correctly. But he just stood, patient, and after a long moment, raised both his eyebrows in a mute prompt. Excuse me? Kai cleared his throat, stood straighter. I assume you are going to the ball. I don't know. I mean, no. No, I'm sorry, I'm not going to the ball. Kai drew back, confused. Oh, well, but maybe you would change your mind? Because I am, you know, the prince. Not bragging, he said quickly. Just a fact. I know. She gulped. The ball. Prince Kai was asking her to the ball. But that was the night she and Aiko would be running away if the car was fixed in time. The night she would escape. Besides, he didn't know who, what he was asking. If he knew the truth, how mortified would he be if anyone found out? Kai shifted on his feet, casting a nervous glance toward the doctor. I'm sorry, she stammered. Thank you, I- Thank you, your highness, but I must respectfully decline. He blinked. His eyes fell as he processed her response. Then he lifted his chin 
and attempted a grin that was almost painfully dejected. No, it's all right, I understand. Dr. Erlon leaned back against his desk. My sincerest condolences, your highness, in more ways than one, it seems. Cinder cast him a frosty glare, but he focused all his attention on cleaning his spectacles again. Kai scratched behind his neck. It was nice to see you again, Lin May. She flinched at the return of the formality and made to speak, her voice catching at apologies, explanations. But the prince didn't wait for them. The door was already shutting behind him. She snapped her jaw shut, thoughts sparking in her head. Dr. Erland clucked his tongue, and Cinder prepared to rail at him with those budding explanations. But he turned away before she could, and paced back to his seat. What a shame you cannot blush, Miss Lynn. Chapter 19 Dr. Erland held both hands toward a chair on the other side of his desk. Please, sit down. I only need to finish up a few notes, and then I will tell you some things I've learned since yesterday afternoon. Cinder sat down, glad to get off her weak legs. The prince just... Yes, I was standing right here. Dr. Erlon reclaimed his own seat and tapped at the screen in his desk. Cinder leaned back against the chair, gripping its arms to quell her shaking. Her mind was replaying the conversation, while her retina scanner informed her that her body was producing mass amounts of endorphins, and she should try to calm down. What do you think he meant by his motives being based on self-preservation? He probably doesn't want to be mauled by all the young ladies at the ball this year. You know there was nearly a stampede a couple years back. She bit her lip. Of all the girls in the whole city, she was the most convenient. She forced these words to resonate, to stick. She was here, and she seemed to be sane, and she was a safe bet for him to ask to the ball. That was all it could be. Besides, he was in mourning. He wasn't thinking straight. Emperor Riken is dead, she said, snatching for anything else to think about. Indeed, Prince Kai was close to his father, you know. She lowered her gaze to the screen Dr. Erland was hunched over. She could see only a small diagram of a human torso, surrounded by boxes of dense text. It did not appear to be hers. I would be lying, Dr. Erland continued, if I said that I had not harbored secret hopes of finding an antidote in time to save his majesty. Though I knew from the moment the diagnosis was made that it was unlikely. Nevertheless, we must proceed with our work. She nodded in agreement, thinking of Peony's little hand gripping hers. Doctor, why haven't you told the prince about me? Don't you want him to know that you found someone who's immune? Isn't that important? He pressed his lips, but he didn't look up at her. Perhaps I should, but it would be his responsibility to share the news with the country, and I don't think we're ready to draw attention to this. When we have solid evidence that you are as valuable as I hope, then we will share our news with the prince and the world. 
She picked up a port screen stylus that was lying abandoned on the desk and examined it like a scientific mystery. Twirling it like a pinwheel over her fingers, she murmured, you also didn't tell him I'm a cyborg. The doctor made eye contact now, his crow's feet crinkling. Ah, and that is what you're most concerned about? Before she could confirm or deny, Dr. Erland waved his hand as if to dismiss her defensiveness. Do you think I should tell him you're a cyborg? I will if you want me to, but I frankly didn't see that was any of his business. Cinder dropped the stylus into her lap. No, that isn't, I just, Dr. Erlon snorted. He was laughing at her. Cinder huffed in irritation and glared out the window. The city was almost blindingly bright in the morning sun. Not like it matters, he'll find out eventually. Yes, I suppose he will, especially if he continues to show, um, interest in you. Dr. Erland pushed his chair back from the desk. There, your DNA sequencing has been completed. Shall we make our way to the lab room? She followed him into the sterile hallway. It was a short walk to the labs, and they entered lab room 11D this time, which looked exactly like lab room 4D, net screen, built-in cabinets, a single exam table, no mirror. Cinder sat down on the exam table without being told. I went to the quarantines today to visit my sister. The doctor paused, his hand on the net screen's power button. That was something of a risk. You understand that people aren't supposed to leave once they arrive, don't you? I know, but I had to see her. She swung her legs, beating her feet against the table's legs. One of the medroids ran a blood test on me before I left, and I was clear. The doctor fiddled with the net screen's controls. Indeed. I just thought you should know, in case that might affect something. It doesn't. He stuck his tongue out the corner of his mouth. A second later, the screen blazed to life. His hands skimmed across the screen, pulling up Cinder's file. It was more complex today, filled with information even she didn't know about herself. And I saw something, she said. The doctor grunted, more focused on the screen than her. One of the Medroids took an ID chip from a victim after she died. The Medroid said it was programmed to take it. It had dozens of them. Dr. Erlon turned back to her with a mildly interested expression. He seemed to ponder this a moment, then his face slowly relaxed. Well, well what? Why would it do that? The doctor scratched his cheek, where a fine beard had started to grow across his leathery face. It's a common practice in rural parts of the world, where lethamosis has been claiming lives for much longer than it has in the cities. The chips are extracted from the deceased and sold off. Illegally, of course, but I understand they can fetch a high price. Why would anyone want to buy someone else's ID chip? Because it's difficult to make a living without one. Money accounts, benefits, licenses, they all require an identity. He stitched his eyebrows. Although that brings up an interesting point. With all the letamosis fatalities the past few years, one would think that the market is saturated with unneeded ID chips. It is curious that they would still be in demand.
I know. But when you already have one... She paused as his words sank in. Would it really be that easy to steal a person's identity? Unless you want to become someone else, he said, reading her thoughts. Thieves, fugitives of the law. The doctor rubbed his head through the hat. The rare lunar. They, of course, do not have ID chips to begin with. There aren't any lunars on Earth. Well, other than ambassadors, I guess. Dr. Erlon's gaze filled with pity, as if she were a naive child. Oh, yes. To Queen Levana's endless dismay, not all lunars are so easily brainwashed into mindless contentment. And many have risked their lives to escape Luna and relocate here. It's difficult to leave the moon, and I'm sure many more die attempting it than succeed, especially as more restrictions are put on lunar ports. But I'm sure it still happens. But that's illegal. They're not supposed to be here at all. Why haven't we stopped them? For a moment, it looked as if Dr. Erland might laugh. Escaping from Luna is difficult. Getting to Earth is the easy part. Lunars have ways of cloaking their spacecrafts and making their way into Earth's atmosphere without detection. Magic, Cinder fidgeted. You make it sound like they're escaping from a prison. Dr. Erland raised both eyebrows at her. Yes, that seems exactly right. Cinder kicked her boots against the lab table. The thought of Queen Levana coming to New Beijing had twisted her stomach. The thought of dozens, maybe even hundreds of lunars living on Earth and impersonating Earthens nearly had her running for the sink. Those savages, with a programmed ID chip and their ability to brainwash people, they could be anyone, become anyone. And Earthens would never know they were being manipulated. Don't look so frightened, Miss Lin. They mostly stick to the countrysides, where their presence is more likely to go unnoticed. The chances that you have ever crossed paths with one is extremely unlikely. He smiled, a teasing, close-lipped smile. Cinder sat up straighter. You sure seem to know a lot about them. I am an old man, Miss Lin. I know a lot about a lot of things. All right, here's a question. What's with lunars and mirrors? I always thought it was just a myth that they're afraid of them. But is it true? The doctor's eyebrows knit together. It has some element of truth. You understand how lunars make use of their glamours? Not really. Ah, I see, he said, rocking back on his heels. Well, the lunar gift is nothing more than the ability to manipulate bioelectric energy, the energy that is naturally created by all living things. For example, it is the same energy that sharks use to detect their prey. Sounds like something lunars would do. The lines around the doctor's mouth crinkled. Lunars have the unique ability to not only detect bioelectricity in others, but also control it. They can manipulate it so that people see what the lunar wishes them to see, and even feel what the lunar wishes them to feel. A glamour is what they call the illusion of themselves that they project into the minds of others. Like making people think you're more beautiful than you really are? Precisely. Or, he gestured at Cinder's hands, 
making a person see skin where there is really metal. Cinder self-consciously rubbed her cyborg hand through the glove. It is why Queen Levana is so striking to look at. Some talented lunars, such as the queen, keep their glamour up all the time. But just as she cannot trick the net screens, neither can she trick a mirror. So they don't like mirrors because they don't want to see themselves? Vanity is a factor, but it's more a question of control. It's easier to trick others into perceiving you as beautiful if you can convince yourself you are beautiful. But mirrors have an uncanny way of telling the truth. Dr. Erlon peered at her, as if amused. And now a question for you, Miss Lin. Why the sudden interest in lunars? Cinder lowered her gaze to her hands and realized she was still carrying the stylus stolen off his desk. Something Kai said. His Highness? She nodded. He told me Queen Levana is coming to New Beijing. The doctor drew back. He gaped at her, bushy eyebrows nearly touching the brim of his hat, then stepped back against the cabinets. For the first time that day, his focus was entirely on her. When? She's supposed to arrive today. Today? She jumped. She could not have imagined Dr. Erland raising his voice before. He spun away from her, scratching his hat, pondering. Are you all right? He waved away the question. I suppose she would have been waiting for this. He pulled off his hat, revealing a bald spot surrounded by thin, messy hair. He shuffled his hand through it a few times, glaring at the floor. She is hoping to prey on Kai, his youth, his inexperience. He blew out a furious breath and replaced the hat. Cinder splayed her fingers out on her knees. What do you mean, prey on him? He turned back to her. His face was pulled taut, his eyes turbulent. The stare he pinned on Cinder made her shrink away. You should not be worried about the prince, Miss Lin. I shouldn't? She's coming today. That is what he told you. She nodded. Then you must leave, quickly. You can't be here when she arrives. He shooed her off the table. Cinder hopped down, but made no move toward the door. What does this have to do with me? We have your blood samples, your DNA. We can do without you for now. Just stay away from the palace until she's gone. Do you understand? Cinder planted her feet. No, I don't. The doctor looked from her to the net screen, still showing her stats. He appeared confused, old, frazzled. Screen, display current news feed. Cinder's stats vanished, replaced by a news anchor. The headline above him announced the emperor's death. Highness is preparing to make a speech in just a few minutes on the death of his imperial majesty and the upcoming coronation. We will be broadcasting live. Mute. Cinder folded her arms. Doctor? He turned, pleading eyes to Cinder. Miss Lin, you must listen very carefully. I'll turn my audio interface volume to max. She leaned back against the cabinets, disappointed when Dr. Erlon didn't so much as blink at her sarcasm. Instead, he blew out a disgruntled sigh. I am not sure how to say this. I thought I would have more time. He rubbed his hands together paced back toward the door, squared his shoulder, and faced Cinder again. You were 11 when you had your operation, correct? The question was not what she'd been expecting. Yes, and before that, you don't remember anything. 
nothing. What does this have to do with- But your adoptive parents, surely they must have told you something about your childhood, your background. Her right palm began to sweat. My stepfather died not long after the accident, and Audrey doesn't like to talk about it, if she even knows anything. Adopting me wasn't exactly her idea. Do you know anything about your biological parents? Cinder shook her head. Just their names, birth dates, whatever was in my files. The files on your ID chip. Well, irritation burst inside her. What's your point? Dr. Erlan's eyes softened, trying to comfort, but the look only unnerved her. Miss Lynn? From your blood samples, I have deduced that you are, in fact, lunar. The word washed over Cinder, as if he were speaking a different language. The machine in her brain kept ticking, ticking, like it was working through an impossible equation. Lunar? The word evaporated off her tongue, almost non-existent. Yes. Lunar, indeed. She pulled back looked at the walls, the exam table, the silent news anchor. I don't have magic, she said, folding her arms in defiance. Yes, well, not all lunars were born with the gift. They're called shells, which is a slightly derogatory connotation on Luna, so, well, bioelectrically challenged doesn't sound much better, does it? He chuckled awkwardly. Cinder's metal hand clenched. She briefly wished she did have some sort of magic so she could shoot a bolt of lightning through his head. I'm not Lunar, she wrenched her glove off and waved her hand at him. I'm Cyborg. You don't think that's bad enough? Lunars can be Cyborg as easily as humans. It's rare, of course, given their intense opposition of cybernetics and brain-machine interfaces. Cinder faked a gasp. No, who would be opposed to that? But being lunar and being cyborg are not mutually exclusive. And it isn't altogether surprising that you were brought here, since the instatement of the non-gifted infanticide under Queen Channery, many lunar parents have attempted to rescue their shell children by bringing them to Earth. Of course, most of them die and are executed for the attempt, but still, I believe this was the case with you. The rescuing part, not the execution part. An orange light flickered in the corner of her vision. Cinder squinted at the man. You're lying. I am not lying, Miss Lynn. She opened her mouth to argue. Which part? What exactly had he said that triggered the lie detector? The light went away as he continued speaking. This also explains your immunity. In fact, when you defeated the pathogens yesterday, your being lunar was the first possibility to cross my mind. But I didn't want to say anything until I'd confirmed it. Cinder pressed her palms against her eyes, blocking out the blaring fluorescence. What does this have to do with immunity? Lunars are immune to the disease, of course. No, not of course. This is not common knowledge. She strung her hands back against her ponytail. Oh, well... But it is common sense when you know the history. He wrung his hands, which I suppose most people don't. Cinder hid her face, gasping for air. Perhaps she could rely on the man being insane and not have to believe anything he said after all. You see, said Dr. Erland, lunars are the original carrier hosts for lithomosis. 
Their migration to the rural areas of Earth, mostly during the reign of Queen Chanary, brought the disease into contact with humans for the first time. Historically, it's a common situation. The rats that brought the bubonic plague to Europe, the conquistadors who brought smallpox to Native Americans. It sounds so second era that Earthens take their immunities for granted now, but with the migration of the lunars, well, Earthen immune systems just weren't prepared. Once even a handful of lunars arrived, bringing the disease with them, it began spreading like wildfire. I thought I wasn't contagious. You aren't now, because your body has developed means of ridding itself of the disease. But you may have been at one point. Besides, I suspect that lunars have different levels of immunity. While some can rid their bodies of the disease entirely, others carry it around without ever developing outward symptoms, spreading it everywhere they go and being none the wiser of the trouble they're causing. Cinder waved her hands before him. No. You're wrong. There's some other explanation. I can't be- I understand this is a lot to take in, but- I need you to understand why you cannot be present when Her Majesty arrives. It's far too dangerous. No, you don't understand. I am not one of them. To be cyborg and lunar? One was enough to make her a mutant, an outcast. But to be both? She shuddered. Lunars were a cruel, savage people. They murdered their shell children. They lied and scammed and brainwashed each other because they could. They didn't care who they hurt, so long as it benefited themselves. She was not one of them. Miss Lin, you must listen to me. You were brought here for a reason. What, to help you find a cure? You think this is some sort of twisted gift of fate? I am not talking fate or destiny. I am talking survival. You cannot let the queen see you. Cinder shrank against the cabinet, more baffled by the second. Why? Why would she care about me? She would care very much about you, he hesitated. His sea blue eyes wild with panic. She, she hates lunar shells, you see. Shells are immune to the lunar glamour. He twirled his hands through the air, searching. They're brainwashing, as it were. Queen Levana can't control shells, which is why she continues to have them exterminated. His lips hardened. Queen Levana will stop at nothing to ensure her control, to terminate any resistance. That means killing those who could resist her, people like you. Do you understand me, Miss Lin? If she were to see you, she would kill you. Gulping, Cinder pressed her thumb against her left wrist. She couldn't feel her ID chip, but she knew it was there, extracted from the deceased. If Dr. Erland were right, then everything she knew about herself, her childhood, her parents, was wrong. A made-up history, a made-up girl. The idea that lunars were fugitives no longer sounded so odd. She turned toward the net screen. Kai was there now, in the press room, talking at the podium. Miss Lin, someone went through a great deal of trouble to bring you here, and now, you are in extreme danger. You cannot jeopardize yourself. She barely heard, watching as text began to scroll along the bottom of the screen. Just announced, Lunar Queen Levana to come to the Eastern Commonwealth.
for Peace Alliance discussions. Just announced. Lunar Queen Lavana. Miss Lin, are you listening to me? Yeah, she said. Extreme danger. I heard you. Chapter 20 The lunar spacecraft did not appear much different from Earth and spacecrafts, except that its body shimmered as if inlaid with diamonds, and a string of gold runes encircled its hull in an unbroken line. The ship was too bright in the afternoon sun, and Kai had to squint against the glare. He did not know if the runes were magic, or if they were only meant to seem so. He did not know if the ship was made out of some fancy, glittery material, or if they just painted it that way. He did know it hurt to look at. The ship was larger than the personal shuttle the queen's head thaumaturge, Sybil, had come to Earth on, and yet still relatively small for all the importance it carried. Smaller than most passenger ships, and smaller than any cargo ship Kai had seen. It was a private ship, meant only for the Lunar Queen and her entourage. The ship landed without a jolt. Heat rose up from the concrete in blistering waves. The fine silk of Kai's shirt was clinging to his back, and a trickle of sweat had begun down his neck. In the evening, the welcome pad would be sheltered by the palace's stone walls, but now it was under full assault by the late August sun. They waited. Torin, at Kai's side, did not fidget. His face was impassive, expectant. His calmness only unsettled Kai even more. On Kai's other side, Sybil Mira stood dressed in her official white coat with its embroidered runes, similar to those on the ship. The material seemed lightweight, yet it covered her from the top of her throat to the knuckles of each hand, and the flared tails hung past her knees. She must have been sweltering, but she looked fully composed. A few steps behind her stood the blonde guard, hands clasped behind his back. Two of Kai's own royal guards stood at either side of the platform. That was all. Lavana had insisted that no one else greet her at the pad. Kai dug his nails into his palms in an attempt to keep the sneer from his face, and waited while the heat plastered his bangs to his forehead. Finally, when the queen seemed to have grown tired of making them suffer, the ramp of the ship descended, revealing silver-furnished stairs. Two men alighted first, both tall, both muscular. One was pale with wildly unkempt orange hair and was dressed in the same warrior-like body armor and weaponry that Sybil's guard wore. The other man was dark as night sky, with no hair at all, and wore a coat like Sybil's, with its bell sleeves and embroidery. His, however, was crimson, announcing that he was beneath Sybil, a second-tier thaumaturge. Kai was glad he knew enough about the lunar court to recognize that, at least. He watched the two men as they surveyed the pad, the surrounding walls, and the assembled group with stoic expressions before standing to either side of the ramp. Sybil slinked forward, Kai swallowed a breath of stifling air. Queen Lavana appeared at the top of the stairs. She still wore her long veil, blindingly bright beneath the relentless sun. Her white dress whispered around her hips as she glided down the steps and accepted Sybil's hand. 
Sybil dipped to one knee and touched her forehead to her queen's knuckle. Our separation was insufferable. I am pleased to be in your service once more, my queen. Then she stood and with a single graceful motion, lifted the veil back from Lavana's face. The hot air caught in Kai's throat, choking him. The queen paused just long enough to seem as though she were letting her eyes adjust to the bright daylight of Earth. But Kai suspected she really just wanted him to see her. She was indeed beautiful, as if someone had taken the scientific measurements of perfection and used them to mold a single ideal specimen. Her face was slightly heart-shaped, with high cheekbones barely flushed. Auburn hair fell in silken ringlets to her waist, and her unblemished ivory skin shimmered like mother of pearl in the sunshine. Her lips were red, 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 looking like she'd just drunk a pint of blood. A chill shook Kai from the inside out. She was unnatural. Kai risked a glance at Torin and saw that he held Lavana's gaze without outward emotion. Seeing his advisor's resolve sent a jolt of determination through Kai. Reminding himself that it was only an illusion, he forced himself to look at the queen again. Her onyx eyes glittered as they swept over him. Your majesty, Kai said, folding a fist to his heart. It is my greatest honor to welcome you to my country and planet. Her lips curled. A sweetness lit up her face an innocence to match a child's. It unsettled him. She did not bow or even nod, but instead held out her hand. Kai hesitated, staring at the pale, translucent skin, wondering if just touching her was all it would take to destroy a man's mind. Bracing himself, he took her hand and brushed a quick kiss against her fingers. Nothing happened. Your Highness she said in a lilting voice that thrummed along Kai's spine. It is my greatest honor to be thus welcomed. Might I again offer my sincerest condolences on the loss of your father, the great Emperor Riken. Kai knew she was not at all sorry for his father's death, but neither her expression nor her tone hinted at a thing. Thank you, he replied. I hope everything meets your expectations during your visit. I look forward to the Eastern Commonwealth's famed hospitality. Sybil stepped forward, eyes respectfully averted from Queen Lavana. I inspected your quarters myself, my queen. They are subpar to our accommodations on Luna, but I think they will be adequate. Lavana did not acknowledge her thaumaturge, but her gaze softened and the world changed. Kai felt that the ground lurched beneath him, that the air had been sucked from the Earth's atmosphere, that the sun had gone black, leaving the ethereal queen the only source of light in the galaxy. Tears pricked at the back of his eyes. He loved her. He needed her. He would do anything to please her. He jabbed his fingernails into his palms as hard as he could, nearly yelping from the pain. But it worked. The queen's control disintegrated, leaving only the beautiful woman, 
not the desperate adoration of her. He knew that she was aware of the effect she had had on him as he struggled to soothe his ragged breathing. And though he wanted to detect cold haughtiness in her black eyes, he saw nothing, nothing at all. If you will follow me, he said, his voice slightly hoarse, I will show you to your rooms. That will not be necessary, said Sybil. I am quite familiar with the guest wing and can take her majesty myself. We would like a moment to speak in private. Of course, said Kai, hoping that his relief didn't show. Sybil led the way, the second thaumaturge and the two guards marching behind. They paid Kai and Torin no heed as they passed, but Kai didn't doubt they would snap his neck in a second if he made any suspicious movements. He released a shaky breath when they had gone. Did you feel her? He asked, barely above a whisper. Of course, said Torin. His eyes were drawn to the ship, but he could have been staring at Mars for all the focus in his eyes. You resisted her well, your highness. I know it was difficult. Kai brushed his hair off his forehead, seeking a breeze, any breeze, but it didn't come. It wasn't so hard. It was only for a moment. Torin's eyes met his. It was one of the few times Kai had seen true sympathy in that gaze. It will get harder. Book three. You want to go to the festival all covered in dust and dirt? But we would only be ashamed of you. Chapter 21. Cinder slumped down at her work desk, relieved to finally be out of that stifling apartment. Not only was the air system down, again, with maintenance nowhere to be seen, but the awkwardness between her and Audrey bordered on unbearable. They'd been tiptoeing around each other since she'd returned home from the lab two days before. Audrey trying to remind Cinder of her superiority by ordering her to defrag their apartment's entire mainframe and update all the software that they didn't even use anymore, while at the same time lurking around as if she were almost kind of ashamed of what she'd done to Cinder. But Cinder was probably imagining that last part. At least Pearl had been gone all day and had only shown up when Cinder and Iko were on their way out to work on the car. Another long day, another late night. The car was going to take more work than she'd realized. The entire exhaust system needed to be replaced, which meant manufacturing a lot of parts herself, which created any number of headaches. She had a feeling she wasn't going to get much sleep if they were going to have it road ready by the night of the ball. She sighed, the ball. She didn't regret saying no when the prince had asked her because she knew how badly that would end. Any number of things were sure to go wrong, from tripping on the stairs and flashing the prince a sexy metal thigh, to running into Pearl or Audrey or someone from the market. People would talk. The gossip channels were sure to look into her past, and pretty soon, the whole world would know that the prince had taken a cyborg to his coronation ball. He would be mortified. She would be mortified. But it didn't make it any easier when she wondered, what if she were wrong? What if Prince Kai wouldn't care? 
What if the world were different and nobody cared if she was cyborg? And on top of that, lunar. Yeah, wishful thinking. Spotting the broken net screen on the carpet, she peeled herself off her chair and kneeled before it. The black screen was just reflective enough for her to see the outline of her face and body, the tanned skin of her arms contrasted with the dark steel of her hand. Denial had run its course until it had nowhere else to go. She was lunar. But she was not afraid of the mirrored surface, not afraid of her own reflection. She couldn't understand what Lavana and her kind, their kind, found so disturbing about it. Her mechanical parts were the only disturbing thing in Cinder's reflection, and that had been done to her on Earth. Lunar and cyborg, and a fugitive. Did Audrey know? No, Audrey never would have housed a lunar. If she'd known, she would have turned Cinder in herself, probably expecting payment. Had Audrey's husband known? That was a question Cinder would probably never know the answer to. Nevertheless, she was confident that so long as Dr. Erlon didn't say anything, her secret would be safe. She would just have to go on as if nothing had changed. In many ways, nothing had. She was every bit an outcast as ever. A white blob caught her eye in the screen's surface. Kai's android its lifeless sensor staring down at her from its perch on top of her desk. Its pear-shaped body was the brightest thing in the room, and probably the cleanest. It reminded her of the sterile medroids in the labs and the quarantines, but this machine did not have scalpels and syringes hidden in its torso. Work, mechanics, she needed the distraction. Returning to her desk, she turned on her audio interface for some tranquil background music. Kicking off her boots, she gripped both sides of the android and wheeled it toward her. After a quick examination of its external plating, she tipped the android over, laying it horizontal so that it balanced on the edge of its treads. Cinder opened the back panel and inspected the wiring throughout the cylindrical frame. It was not a complicated android. The interior was mostly hollow, a shell for housing a minimum of hard drives, wires, chips. Tudor androids required little more than a central processing unit. Cinder suspected that the android would have to be wiped and reprogrammed, but she had a feeling that wasn't a viable option. Despite Kai's nonchalance, it was clear that this android knew something important, and after their conversation in the research hall, she had an uneasy feeling it had something to do with lunars. War strategies? Classified communications? Evidence for blackmail? Whatever it was, Kai clearly thought it would help, and he'd trusted Cinder to save it. No pressure or anything, she muttered, gripping a flashlight between her teeth so she could see inside the android. She grabbed a pair of pliers and coerced the wires from one side of its cranium to the other. Its configuration was similar to Ico's, so Cinder felt a familiarity with its parts, knew exactly where to find all the most important connections. She checked that the wire connectors were sound, that the battery held power, that no important pieces were missing, and everything seemed fine. She cleaned out the noise translator and adjusted the internal fan, 
But Nancy the android remained a lifeless statue of plastic and aluminum. All dressed up with nowhere to go, said Aiko from the doorway. Cinder spit out the flashlight with a laugh and glanced down at her oil-stained cargo pants. Yeah, right. All I need is a tiara. I was talking about me. She spun her chair around. Aiko had draped a strand of Audrey's pearls around her bulbous head and smeared cherry lipstick beneath her censer in a horrible imitation of lips. Cinder laughed. Wow, that's a great color on you. Do you think? Aiko wheeled her way into the room and paused before Cinder's desk, trying to catch her reflection in the net screen. I was imagining going to the ball and dancing with the prince. Cinder rubbed her jaw with one hand and mindlessly tapped the table with the other. Funny, I've found myself imagining that exact thing lately. I knew you liked him. You pretend to be immune to his charms, but I could see the way you looked at him at the market. Aiko rubbed at the lipstick, smearing it across her blank white chin. Yeah, well, Cinder pinched her metal fingers with the plier's nose. We all have our weaknesses. I know, said Aiko. Mine is shoes. Cinder tossed the tool onto her desk. Something like guilt was beginning to grow in her when Aiko was around. She knew she should tell Aiko about being lunar, that Aiko more than anyone would understand what it was like to be different and unwanted. But somehow, she couldn't bring herself to say it out loud. By the way, Aiko, it turns out I'm lunar. You don't mind, do you? What are you doing down here? She asked instead. Just seeing if you need help. I'm supposed to be dusting the air vents, but Audrey was in the bath. So? I could hear her crying. Cinder blinked. Oh. It was making me feel useless. I see. Aiko was not a normal servant android, but she did retain one prominent trait. Uselessness was the worst emotion they knew. Well, sure you can help. Cinder said, rubbing her hands together. Just don't let her catch you with those pearls. Aiko lifted the beaded necklace up with her prongs, and Cinder noticed she was wearing the ribbon Peony had given her. She pulled back, as if she'd been stung. How about some light? The blue sensor brightened, shedding a spotlight into Nancy's interior. Cinder twisted up her lips. Do you think it could have a virus? Maybe her programming was overwhelmed by Prince Kai's uncanny hotness. Cinder flinched. Can we please not talk about the prince? I don't think that will be possible. You're working on his android after all. Just think about the things she knows, the things she's seen, and- Aiko's voice sputtered. Do you think she's seen him in the nude? Oh, for heaven's sake. Cinder yanked off her gloves and tossed them onto the table. You're not helping. I'm just making conversation. Well, stop. Crossing her arms over her chest, Cinder pushed her chair back from the work table and swung both legs up to rest on top of it. It has to be a software issue. She sneered to herself. Software issues usually came down to reinstallation, but that would turn the android into a blank slate. 
She didn't know if Kai was concerned with the android's personality chip, which had probably developed into something quite complicated after 20 years of service. But she did know Kai was concerned with something in this android's hard drive, and she didn't want to risk wiping whatever it was. The only way to determine what was wrong and if a reboot was necessary was to check the android's internal diagnostics, and that required plugging in. Cinder hated plugging in. Connecting her own wiring with a foreign object had always felt hazardous. Like if she wasn't careful, her own software could be overridden. Chastising herself for being squeamish, she reached for the panel in the back of her head. Her fingernail caught the small latch and swung it open. What's that? Cinder stared at Iko's outstretched prong. What's what? That chip. Cinder dropped her feet to the floor and leaned forward. She squinted into the far back of the model, where a row of tiny chips stood like soldiers along the bottom of the control panel. There were 20 plugs in all, but only 13 of them were full. Manufacturers always left plenty of room for add-ons and updates. Iko had spotted the 13th chip, and she was right. Something was different about it. It was tucked far enough behind the other chips that it was easy to miss with a cursory glance. But when Cinder targeted it with the flashlight, it gleamed like polished silver. Cinder shut the panel in the back of her head and called up the digital blueprint of the android's model on her retina. According to the manufacturer's original plans, this model only came with 12 chips. But surely after 20 years, the android would have received at least one add-on. Surely the palace had access to the newest, finest programs available. Still, Cinder had never seen a chip quite like this.